If you have your Bibles with you, I hope that you do. They're amazing things to have. Uh, we're going to be uh, the beginning of what is called the New Testament. Um, uh, this guy named Matthew uh, wrote down some things for us. He traveled around in these circles and knew this Jesus, and he wrote down some things for us. Um, grateful, grateful, grateful. Uh, if you're in Psalm, which is kind of the middle of your Bible, go to the right a little bit. If you find yourself in, like, you know... Acts, Romans, you're not far off, it's just a little bit back to the left, um, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Last week we talked about, um, you know, the riveting uh, way that Matthew opens his story about who Jesus is and what he did uh, with a genealogy, you know, so just riveting. But Matthew does something interesting in his genealogy where um, he's highlighting that Jesus is this fulfillment. I mean, I don't even really understand exactly, but you can tell that Ma- how he's doing it, but you can tell that Matthew cares deeply that you understand that this is the fulfillment. This is the promised thing that you've been waiting for. Is that me? Yeah, it's me. All right, one sec. Let's try. Here. Here. Let's wiggle the things. We good? All right, let's try again. Uh, you can tell he cares deeply that we care about the fulfillment. He talks about the 14 and the 14. Um, we don't really know why he uses 14. We can guess. But what is clear is this Jesus is the one, the descendant of Abraham, the descendant of David. Big deal because promises were made to these guys about the salvation of the world. But he also does another interesting thing in the genealogy. If you go back and read it, there's things that kind of jump out at you. You can tell because the pattern, the rhythm breaks. And when he breaks the rhythm in this genealogy, this guy had this guy, this son of this guy, son of the father of the father of the father of the father of he'll break this rhythm and say, of, and list the mother. It's very interesting. And the moms he lists are not like what you would call like the, the heroes of the faith. Uh, they're, they're at the very least, some of them are actually, you know, Ruth is, but they're, they're at the very least, they're, they're outsiders or something that highlights if you were a certain type of Jewish believer, highlight something that may not be the your favorite part of the story of your people, right? Ruth, godly woman, but she's a Moabite. She's an outsider. She's not, but she stands, Matthew highlights that she's part of this genealogy. Rahab, she was a prostitute and an outsider. Jesus highlights that she is part. Matthew highlights that she is part of this lineage. He highlights Tamar, I can't even, without a warning, give you that story. Like, it is so, like, she basically tricks her father-in-law. It's crazy what she does. But her father-in-law says, she's more righteous than me. And then Bathsheba's not even mentioned. She's alluded to in the genealogy. Don't even want to bring up that David himself, the King David himself, had this woman's husband murdered and took him, took her as his own, and then lied about it and stole Matthew highlights these things in this genealogy, and, 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 and we don't know, it's an, it's an anonymous, we don't know for a fact that a lot of the evidence is, even though it's anonymously written, that Matthew was Matthew the tax collector. It really seems that that's who, who wrote this. Um, and if you were a tax collector, man, you were an outsider, because you were someone at this time who, for the Roman Empire, would collect taxes from your friends and family, and the way that you would make a living most likely would be to overtax people and keep what you could for yourself. So Matthew is an outsider until this guy, this, this teacher, this, this rabbi comes walking along one day and tells Matthew, hey, come follow me. 
And he becomes an insider in this group, but he's been an outsider his whole life. So I think that maybe this story and the way he tells it sits well with him. This story is for sinners and people like me, you know, outsiders like me. So Matthew tells this amazing genealogy. So today we're going to pick up in verse 18 of chapter 1. Uh, it's Christmas in August. But I think it's good, right? It's, it's good. I think sometimes in Christmas we hear the Christmas story and we're kind of in this certain mood, right? Like ready to kill our family or, or like really chill and excited about eggnog and stuff, right, you know? But we're in a certain mood at Christmas that kind of maybe causes us to receive this a story in maybe a familiar way. So it's kind of nice to go through it in August, right? You know, when it's going to be 103 degrees this week. So here's the go. So what Matthew's going to do in the next part of his introduction, we're still in Matthew's introduction, by the way. Like, we're not even into the meat yet. Like, we're just, he's just introducing us to what he's going to do. And in this introduction, he's about to tell us who this Jesus is and, and when he came. That's what's going to happen. So here it is. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ. Actual, sorry, 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 sorry. We're going to read it in a sec. Actual word, just so you know, like, is Genesis. It's not an accident. The birth, the Genesis, the beginning of Jesus, the birth of Jesus. All right, let's, let's, let's go. The beginning of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, took place in this way. This is how it went down. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. All right, let's stop right there. All right, so here's the deal. So betrothed, legal thing back then, not, not, for, not, not like it is for us. Uh, you know, like you kind of like, it's not like a trial period. Like there's like legal ramifications, right? When you were betrothed to someone, but you would not come together as husband and wife, but you were legally bound together as husband and wife, basically. Rough. Betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. All right, let's stop there for a second. All right, so each week when we confess the creed, um, as Christians all over the world and throughout, you know, for nearly, you know, 16, 1700 years probably, have confessed what we believe, uh, foundational things, foundational truths, we confess that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Something that Christians believe. And and here's why we believe it. uh, Because it happened. That's why Matthew and Luke tell us about it. These are the two gospel writers that tell us about it. This is how it happened. The Holy Spirit conceived the child and he was born of Mary. Um, So, uh, man, here's the deal. Um, This would have been... I mean, it kind of fits. I mean, it's weird, I admit it. I admit it, it's weird. But it kind of fits with salvation history. At many moments, in that genealogy that Matthew just gave us, at moments in, critical moments in salvation history, God has intervened to cause conception. Abraham and his wife, 
God intervenes in a couple to have, so that they can have a child. In his history of what he's doing, God often intercedes in weakness and makes sure that his plan comes to Comes, comes to be fulfilled in ways that we could have never dreamed of. And so it, God does this, has done this before. Not in this way, right? Not in this way. It's always been of two people, but this time it's, it's of one. And so, and so this is a, a unique thing, but nothing's happened like it before, but like it's not that, a, it's, it's expected that God intervenes in such an intimate way. Matthew says that it reminds him, it's so much a thing that happens in history, Matthew says it reminds him of this guy named Ahaz, right? There's this king named Ahaz, and Ahaz was in a tough spot politically. It's a long time ago, the story in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah, uh, he mentions it here. He says that there's this time in history when this king Ahaz had this choice to make. He could align himself with a foreign political power to protect himself against other political powers, or he could trust God. So Isaiah goes to Ahaz and goes like, hey man, dude, don't worry about these people. And he's like, don't worry about these nations. Just trust God. Ask him for a sign. And Ahaz goes, nah, I, uh, nah I'm good. And Isaiah's like, dude, God said ask him for anything, big or small, and he'll do it. And Ahaz goes, I would never do that. Uh, nah, I'm good. And Isaiah says, and, and what Matthew wrote, Isaiah says, hey, here's the sign that God's gonna give you even though you didn't ask for one. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This will be your sign that if you would just trust me, I'm gonna deal with your enemies and bring judgment on them and save you if you just believe me. So as he writes about this, Matthew writes about this, he goes, he knows, he remembers this story of Ahaz and goes, man, this is what they were talking about way back then. We don't have any evidence. We have a lot of writings between uh, Jesus coming and when Isaiah was written. A lot of people commenting on it and nobody really mentions that we know of, that we found that this is some kind of messianic prophet, prophecy. Hey, this is like nobody's looking forward for a virgin to give birth in the future. Nobody's expecting that. Matthew sees this situation and goes, what? Dude, I know what this is about. And he puts it right here at the beginning of his gospel to say, hey, you guys remember Ahaz? And when God promised him if you would just trust him, then this would happen? That's what's going on, but in an even bigger way than back then. Like this grand thing is gonna happen. And he gets so excited, he begins like, this is what always has been promised. That this would happen. Way back in Genesis, and at the very beginning of Scripture, it says, you know, in the beginning was, you know, God, there's just chaos, and God's spirit is hovering over the deep, and the spirit speaks into the chaos, and there's this creative act at the very beginning of creation where life is created, a place for life to, to, to succeed and to, and to be, to just to prosper, and to be successful is created, and, and then man himself, and this God's spirit is placed inside of man. The Holy Spirit is part of the creative act, God's spirit is part of the creative act in Genesis and so it makes sense that here again when God has come to renew all of creation the spirit will be intimately involved in the creation of life just like he was at the beginning Matthew's doing some cool stuff with words you know and so he says this is what's happening this is it this is what he is doing but this miracle goes beyond anything that he's ever seen before this is God's final deliverance it's important to say this Jesus, the Son of God, was, did not come to be at this moment. 
The Son of God, the third person of the Trinity, the divine, the divine one, has always been and always will be existed outside of time and space. But in this moment in history, the Holy Spirit, Spirit creates as a human God incarnate. So it's fully divine. He's fully divine and fully human. This amazing thing, this becomes absolutely critical in the story, absolutely critical to what Christians believe, that he is divine, God with us, but also the man Jesus. He's both of these things. God has chosen, Matthew is telling us, to knit his, himself to humans in such an intimate way that he's become one himself. That God has entered flesh. Uh, some of the early church fathers say it this way, I love it so much, that God, because of his great love for us, becomes killable. Unbelievable. It's this great act of love, this great divine act at the beginning of the renewal of all of creation, the Holy Spirit bringing Jesus to birth inside of Mary. It's also gonna be a pattern that we see going forward, right? Uh, the life of Christ birthed inside of us, also an act of the Holy Spirit. The life that comes alive us by knitting ourselves to Jesus in faith, that life comes into us, the Holy Spirit creates that life in us. This is the pattern that we're gonna see Matthew develop. Holy Spirit brings the eternal divine son of God into human form, human life through a work of the Holy Spirit and he is born from Mary. This is a new thing. At this point in history, uh, in Matthew's writing, um, you have all these great stories, all this great history that he's kind of just laid out in, in summary form in the genealogy. But ever since Adam and Eve, you have two people coming together to create a life. And ever since sin has entered the world, what has resulted is fear and shame. Just life full of fear and shame. I think it's the, you know, I see this all the time because I think it's just awesome. And I don't mind, you know, I don't, I don't mind telling you over and over again. It's this weird thing, right, when that God creates Adam and Eve. It's this huge story of creation and there's this weird, almost like footnote, like this, the, the, the author interjects kind of this note into the act of creation and he goes, and Adam and Eve were both naked and not ashamed. It's a weird note, right? You know, God made everything and they were naked. Feels weird, you know? But then when sin enters the world, what happens? They knew that they were naked. Shame and fear and they go hide because shame and fear enter the world. And ever since shame and fear entered the world, the very next generation, one brother kills another brother. And then nations begin to be formed and they begin to fight against each other. And ever since the beginning of time, it just seems to be getting worse. And so God says, I'm gonna start this nation through this man named Abraham. And we're going to have this amazing thing, and he creates, he does all of these promises, but Abraham is deeply flawed. Uh, and then, so, you know, so they end up actually, the people, the descendants end up in Egypt, and they end up in slavery. And then they bring this guy named Moses, but Moses is also deeply flawed. And so God says, Listen, I'm going to be your king. And he does this amazing thing, and he takes him to be the, his nation, and he puts him in this, gives him laws, and he gives them all of this land, and says, I'm going to be your king. And they say, Yeah, that's kind of okay, but they forget about him, and they're like, You know what? We want our own king. So God gives them a king. And the best king they had, their second king, the best king they had, this dude named David, uh, yeah, he was the one that had Bathsheba's husband killed so he could have Bathsheba for himself. That's the best one. The best one. The one that God said, after, a man after my own heart. The best one. Probably date rapist and murderer. Here's what I'm saying. It doesn't seem to be getting a ton better. It seems like we just kind of need, like humans just need something different. Constantly now, like every time I read the news, which is just, trust me, not very often, 
I like to be happy. But when I do, it's constantly talking about, you see these stats about how, like, how divided we are as a country, how divided we are, how divided, how, how, it just doesn't seem to be like anybody, it does it seem like the nat- natural push in the world is to draw us close together to love one another better? The natural push since, since Adam and Eve seems to be our inheritance to naturally separate ourselves from one another through our own selfishness. seems like we almost need a do-over, like a restart. It almost seems like I just need a whole different, like, want center, you know? Like, I need a whole new heart. And that's the story that Matthew is telling us. By God entering the world fully divine, the Holy Spirit giving him flesh, making him fully human as well, we now have someone who will go and live the life that we're supposed to live, die the death that we should have died, so that we can now have this new kind of life where my inheritance is not what I get from Adam, but my inheritance is what I get from Jesus by having faith in him. A whole new way of being in the world. A whole new way of thinking. A whole new quality of life that the Bible likes to call eternal. The kind of life that God has flowing into us through faith in Jesus. It's been promised for a long time that God would recreate in ourselves, that he would come himself and create in us new hearts. The biblical way of saying, not just what you love and want, the biblical saying, biblical way of talking about the very center of your being that you live out of is your heart. The recreating the very center that we live out of, instead of being this selfish turned in thing, instead of being something that's turned out. When Adam and Eve sinned, there's this turning in on themselves. They never even knew they were naked before it, because they looked out. And then, when sin enters the world, we look in on ourselves, and we have to build our own selves up and do all manner of things because we feel and realize how inadequate we are. Is it any wonder we have control issues and anxiety? Constantly obsessed with ourselves. And so what, G- God, what Matthew is setting us up for, this very beginning, is that this one has come, God has entered the world, world, both man and divine, God himself coming in the flesh and coming into the world, and this is what he says he's gonna do. Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife, but knew her not she'd given, uh, until she had given birth, and he called his name Jesus. And he tells him why he's, you're gonna call him your name Jesus. The angel says, behold, uh, uh, don't fear, take Mary as your wife. Uh, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she'll bear a son. And says this, uh, for he will save his people from their sins. You're going to call him Jesus. Actually, it's actually Joshua. He comes to us through like translation stuff as Jesus. It's fine. It's fine. It's not a problem. But what it means is Yahweh saves. His name means Yahweh saves. Which is great news, Right? I mean, I have an idea of what I want him to save me from, though. Right? Like, I want him to save me, you know, from all the bills that are due next month. You know? Like, I want him to save me from the embarrassment. I want him to save me from my terrible eating habits. I want him to save me uh, from all the people that maybe attack me. I want him, and, and they had an idea, too. We want you to save us from the Romans. And in Matthew's telling of our, the announcement of Jesus, he says, you're going to call him Yahweh saved. And people have been like, yes. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to save you from your sins. I'm sorry, what? I wasn't asking to be saved from myself. I'm just fine, thank you. It's all these dummies' fault. 
and he says, you're gonna, he's going to save them from their sins. It's the consequences of how we are in the world that he's going to save us from. He's going to save me from myself, from the consequences of what has happened in my heart, and from the consequences of what's been done to me because of sin, because of what's been done to you and what you've done, he will rescue you from the, not just from the absolute ultimate consequences of that. Don't get me wrong, there's temporal consequences for sin, but from the ultimate consequences of God's anger being poured out on what damages those he loves, he's going to rescue you from that. That's even better news than you could imagine, except for when you first hear it, you're like, uh, I need you to save me from the Romans. I need you to save me from this oppression. I need you to save me from this, and I need you to save me from that. And he says, here's what he's going to save you from, your sin. Unbelievable. Oh, unbelievable. Maybe not what I wanted, but definitely what I need. Where was I? There, the da 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 birth, supernatural birth. Oh, yeah, I did all that. He doesn't tell us how he's going to do it yet, Bo. We're going to find out later. It's going to be unbelievable. Here's the thing. We need salvation, and we can't bring it in our own lives. I've, I've tried, and David couldn't bring it. Abraham couldn't bring it. None of the kings after David could bring it. Now, I can't bring it into my life. I can't bring the salvation that I need, and so God has, Matthew is telling us, brought us the salvation that we need. It is sin that is ruining the world, and this is how he will rescue us. And then he tells us when. It is the craziest story. All right, let's read chapter two. Christmas story. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, In you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring him to me, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. When they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. He arose, took his child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. 
And Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That was spoken. That was uh, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Matthew is doing so many things. Like it's like it, he's bringing so he's telling us the story, but he's telling us in a way that highlights so many beautiful things. I'm only going to do one of them today. All right, we'll get to the others later. I mean, because he's he's. High. He's paralleling him to, 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 to Moses coming out of Egypt. He's, he's doing all of these things. Fulfillment, fulfillment. Also, by the way, did you notice how many dreams Joseph has? There's another story of Joseph, having, a Joseph who dreams a lot in the Bible, but we don't have time for that. What we are going to talk about is this. He tells us when Jesus comes. It's in the time when Herod was, days, was born in Bethlehem, Judea, in the days of Herod the king. That's a different feel, not at Christmas, doesn't it? It's just a different vibe, you know? Here's the thing about Herod. Uh, some people believe uh, that he was, if not the, definitely one of the richest men that has ever walked the face of the earth. Super, super wealthy. Powerful soldier, an amazing politician, great orator. He's most known, though, for his building projects. He was friends with Mark Anthony, right? He, his dad was buddies with Julius Caesar. Caesar actually gave him, he was from this area south of Judea called Edom. Uh, so Edomites, so that's, where, you know, that's kind of the land they were from. Uh, but he, he was a practicing Jew, but he was fell in favor because of his great wealth and his ties with Mark Anthony to Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar actually gave him his Roman citizenship, which is a thing that you couldn't, like you had to buy at great expense. It had to be gifted to you or you had to be born there. And he wasn't born there. So he's Roman, but he's a practicing Jew. And so uh, he, he's observant, an observant Jew. And so he just has this insane amount of wealth from his dad, Antipas. And Antipas uh, was in the spice trade, right? And so he has amassed an amazing wealth. And Herod has amazing wealth, which he leverages to have amazing political relationships, which he leverages to get even more wealth. Like just insanely wealthy, a few of his building projects that he got into himself. Uh, he took a small little terrible port on the Mediterranean Sea at the north side of, Ju- uh, of Judea and he uh, just expanded it like a breakwater like 500 feet out into the ocean so they could sail between there and Rome. Huge building projects. Uh, he, there's, this, there's this desert temple that he built. They found like 17 huge cisterns because there was no water. He would have water piped there and buried in case he ever needed to go hide out there. He could stay for months without ever having to step foot outside. They found like dates and like all this dried fruit and stuff. Huge, on top of this mountain, there's this huge, this huge palace in the desert that he built. He'd also build uh, things for uh, other nations, right? To Building projects in other nations just to, you know, well, two reasons. One, a part of his job as ruler over uh, the area of Judea was to keep the peace. Rome loved peace. They're like, dude, like your job is to like, collect taxes and keep the peace. That's what you got to do. And so he would keep the peace. He would kind of build things for people. It's one of the reasons he built the, the, the temple, right? And so the second temple was kind of like puny. The Old Testament says when they, the first temple was torn down, they built the second one. They said the foundation of it. It says that the people who had seen the first uh, temple wept. 
So Herod comes into this like lesser, lesser temple and he just expands it and makes it beautiful. People would travel from all over the world to see the temple that Herod helped them build in Jerusalem. It was magnificent. As a matter of fact, even in some of the gospels, the disciples are taking Jesus and they're like showing him around Jerusalem and they're like, dude, check out the size of these stones. And Jesus, and you know what Jesus says? He's like, eh. There's gonna come a time not too long from now when there's not gonna be a single stone left on top of one another. It happens in 8070. All going to go away. And the disciples are like, what are you talking about, man? Huge building projects for a couple reasons. One, to help keep the peace, to buy favor, but also, you know, to make a name for yourself, right? I mean, he didn't have Instagram. He had to do something. People had to know who he was. So he built huge cities and slapped his name on them. One, my favorite one, maybe not the most impressive, uh, is there's, he builds Herodium. Herodium is about three and a half miles from Jerusalem. I'm sorry, from Bethlehem. Just to the south of, of uh, Bethlehem. Uh, you can, there's, the ruins are there. I've seen pictures of it. It's amazing as I was doing some research. Uh, uh, here's what he did. Uh, he won a battle there and he wanted to build a palace where there wasn't a mountain, so he made one. He had dirt brought in and built a huge pile of dirt in the desert and then put his palace, buried it down and put a second story on top of it. And in these palaces, they would take aqueducts and run water from miles away so he could have spas. They have, they've, they, when they've done the excavation, they find out that there's like a fire behind this one wall and this, so he could, behind this one wall and water would drip down behind it so he could create his own little steam rooms in the first century. Baths just filled with water so big they said that they found boats nearby. They had little playboats. They would just run in the bathtubs that he had, in the pools that he had. Insane amounts of money. Insane amounts of wealth and power. Unbelievable. And if you grew up in Bethlehem or Jerusalem, you'd seen these things. But they're unbelievable demonstrations of how powerful money and wealth are that you go out and you get what you can have for yourself and in this scene born in shameful circumstances right at least societally right as a matter of fact there's a verse in john jesus gets into an argument with some people and uh he tells them that like hey that's sinful you can't do this and they get so indignant they just they they're like hey man Who are you? We know who your mom is, and we know that they weren't married when you were born. He says, you were conceived in sin. They accuse him of that. Born into shameful circumstances, Luke tells us how poor they were. This guy's got bathhouses he he runs aqueducts to, and they can't afford but a pigeon to bring into the temple for sacrifice. You have two kings in the same neighborhood but it's very different kingdoms. I mean, probably no surprise to you that Herod ends up going crazy, right? Super paranoid. Uh, Divorces his first wife to marry the second wife so that, uh, just for political reasons, but actually falls in love with her, right? Really loves her, but would fly into fits of jealous rage. Interesting, by the way, that even though you may be the richest man that's ever lived, uh, you uh, you can't command love. Hmm. Slips right through his hands. Anyway, flies into fits of rage. His sister takes advantage of that. He ends up killing his second wife and her two sons. And he kills her mother, her brothers. Oh, by the way, he has eight other wives and 16 other children. Loses his mind. Fits of rage, crazy stuff. Matter of fact, I was reading uh, just this morning, a secular scholar said, 
hey, the fact that he would just kill all the babies in Bethlehem lines up. That's who he was. Matthew is establishing for us at the very beginning of his story a contrast between two kingdoms, two ways of being in the world. There's Herod's way, where money and power, what you can get for yourself, the thing that you can attain and hang on to, you, to for yourself, is the way to be in the world. It is mine, and I will go get what I can have, and the Herods of the world are very successful at it, and they use it to do what? Oppress the poor, get what they can for them, hurt others. They take what they can have, and, and they, they use it to get what they can for them. Then you have this child born of poor parents, this king born of poor parents in Bethlehem that the nations are already coming to see. Gentiles are already flowing to him. And he flies in a jealous rage and kills all these children. What Matthew's going to lead us into from the rest of the story and Jesus' teachings and all the stuff that he lays out for who Jesus was and what he's done is this. There's two kingdoms and we have a choice. We can be, and and here's the deal, you have to pick one of them. Because at some point, the Herod spirit of the world will tell you to do one thing, and Jesus will tell you to do another, and you're going to have to pick. The Herod spirit of the world will tell you, hey, I know that you have an advantage here. Use Use this advantage to get what you can for you. Jesus will tell you to lay that aside so you can love your brother well, so you can love your enemy well. It's two very different ways of being in the world. And the thing is, you look at the situation and you go, how in the world could you think that this poor king to poor parents could ever stand up against the kind of power that runs water miles and miles and miles and miles to one of his many, many fortresses and temples? How can this king stand up? And he's going to go, and he's going to teach, and he's going to love, and he's going to be around poor people and people that are hurting and he's going to give his life for them, for sinners, for people who hate him, who are mad at him and that is the way of God's kingdom. And he invites us into that way of being and explains to us how we love him. Problem is though, it's just upside down. Right? It doesn't make any sense to us. All of our gauges say, hold on a second, if I can gauge, because here's the deal, what's playing out on like a Herod scale, isn't that just like the magnified version, the extended version of what goes on in my heart every single day? I mean, his heart for what he's doing is really no different than my heart the other day when, I cut some, when somebody cut me off in traffic and I went around them and pushed them into the wrong lane so they missed their exit. I'm kidding, I didn't do that. I thought about it though. I had an advantage and I wanted to use it to get, to, to get revenge. The, the heart, that heart is inside of us to, to get what I can for me. And, and Matthew's encouraging us, it's not the way to be in the world. We'll always get Herod's that way. We'll always get David's at best. There's a different way to be in the world and the way that we can have that is through faith in Jesus, aligning our life, being knit to him, having his life flow into us by faith in him becoming different in the world. So that when my heart tells me, hey, in this relationship, I have the advantage, I have the upper hand in this relationship, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to use that advantage to manipulate and control. That's a haired way of being in the world. That's a normal human way. It's an Adam way of being in the world. 
The Jesus way of being in the world is that you are so deeply loved, you do not have to use that advantage. You can turn and love them and show them my love. You don't have to take that advantage and use it. Look at me and look what I have done for you and how deeply I love you. Go and be that way in that world. And you're so secure in your faith in Jesus and what he, that it's not you hanging on to him, but it's him hanging on to you that you can go and be a non-anxious presence in this world. In the shadow of Herodium, in the shadow of a world that looks like the way to win is to get everything you can for you, Jesus says, watch this. The way God is, is he's gonna lay down his life for you. You go be like me. That's why Jesus says insane things that don't build followers very well, you would think. Like, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross. Die every day to what you could have for you to love the world. Don't be, don't follow the spirit of the Herods of this world. Be united to me the life that flows out of me into you. Forgiveness of sins, resurrection, all of the promises that come from being born again of Jesus by faith in him. Not what I can earn and what I can I have. It's a Herod way of being, but by what has been given to me as a gift in Christ. Two ways of operating in the world, two different kingdoms. You're gonna trust one or the other. Problem is our gauge is coming in the world all broken, right? We're flying upside down and we don't even know it. As long as I got enough money, as long as I got enough respect, as long as everything's going smooth and fine in my life, I'm flying right side up until everything falls apart and I pull up and crash into the ground. Jesus gives us all new gauges. When life goes wrong, am I deeply loved? Even though I'm a deep sinner? Yeah. It's a new gauge, a new way of being in the world. I've been hurt and I'm wounded. What should I do? Lay down your life to love them well. New way of being in the world, new set of gauges. It feels upside down, but it's right side up, and we're just living upside down. It's a new way of being in the world because he makes us into new beings, supernaturally born of him by faith in Jesus, a work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Matthew's gonna lay all this out for us as we continue. Let's pray. God, what a gift. Not many, not many, many of us have access to Herod-type things, but all of us have access to the love that comes to us through you. God, give us the courage to see the goodness of living for you. Give us the courage of understand, to understand, give us the wisdom to understand that what you have called us to is so much bigger and better than we could have ever dreamed of. Give us the wisdom to read new gauges. When we find ourselves in a situation and, and we, we feel a certain way and we think a certain way and we want to act a certain way, to stop that, to look at you and say, you are Lord, not the spirit of the sage Herod. Tell me what to do. And even though it just seems like insanity to lay down my life, to love others, to not take the advantage I have to manipulate and control, to not do any of those things but take all of my advantages and use them for the weak and the outsider, for the sinner, ugh. Give me the wisdom to see because that's who I am. I am the weak, I am the sinner, I am the outsider. I'm completely dependent on you. We could not rescue ourselves or you wouldn't have had to come. We could not save ourselves, but you did. I, so often I think I want you to fix so many things in the world, and I do. There's things that need to be fixed. But first, fix me. Work in my life to save me from the sin, the, consequence, the ultimate consequences of death and hell, that I may have life. Teach me to be in the world as your disciple. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.